And if you would open your copy of the Scriptures to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have opened and read Your Scripture, I pray that uh, You would help us to uh, be like um, those whom Paul describes and frankly all that are in Christ Jesus who are the true circumcision um, certainly are described by this verse. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. And so I pray that uh, by the Spirit we would worship Christ as we hear His Word read and also proclaimed. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story. It is a fictional story, but it could be true. And so the story goes like this. When Epaphroditus returned to Philippi, he brought back the letter with him that Paul had written, this letter that we are now studying. And when he brought it back to Philippi, he gave it to the pastor of the church. And the pastor in Philippi was thrilled. So that, that next Sunday, instead of preaching, the, the, the pastor uh, read Paul's letter instead. And as he was reading uh, this letter to the Philippians, he came to the halfway point in the letter, Philippians uh, 3, verse 1, which is our text, part of our text this morning, and it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then he continued on for two more chapters. After he finished reading the letter, a young boy began tugging at his daddy's shirt to ask him a question. Daddy, Daddy, what does that word finally mean? And the father looked at his son and said, Well, when spoken by a preacher, it means absolutely nothing. And fathers have been telling that to their sons for the last 2,000 years. And so, as a preacher, when I say finally too early... I'm just being a disciple of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> uh, most commentators uh, point out that this word translated finally was actually uh, used as a transitional device in, in Greek. So in other words, Paul's changing the subject, um, and so he uses this word finally uh, just, to, just to alert them that he's changing the, the subject. Others believe that uh, Paul uh, wanted to write about how to stand firm in Christ and started writing, but then remembered, oh yeah, I also want to talk about, um, about these, um, warn them about 
um, uh, uh, those people that will come around, those Judaizers who will tell them to uh, find righteousness in something other than Christ. And so it's like he started telling them how to stand firm in the Lord um, by rejoicing, and then he stopped and he backed off. And then he returned to it in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice, I say again, rejoice. Let your, your, um, your peace be evident to all. And so, um, whatever Paul's doing, why he uses the word finally, I wasn't really satisfied with the answers of the commentators. So, I um, mention only verse 1 to say that we will come back to it in chapter 4, verse 4. I know that um, this subject of rejoicing in the Lord uh, is would be of interest to uh, to many of you. So we will get to it when we get to chapter 4, verse 4. I want to concentrate, however, on verses 2 and 3. So to look at verses 2 and 3, uh, the Apostle Paul says something. Uh, he uses language that uh, almost seems unbecoming of the Apostle Paul. He says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out. Um, look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There in verse 2. Now last week I walked into my office and there was this big stained glass uh, picture of a Georgia Bulldog that had appeared. And those of you who've been around the church for a while can probably easily guess who put that uh, that big stained glass picture of a, of a Georgia Bulldog in my office. I even saw somebody pointing uh, over Rip's way. Um, Rip Darden is a big Georgia Bulldog fan, as am I. And Rip's favorite verse is Philippians 3.2. Watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. I believe the idea was that I bring the stained glass picture in here and let it serve as a warning to all the Gator fans that they need to watch out for the junkyard dogs. But I didn't bring the picture uh, in, I'm sure much to Rip's disappointment, because I don't believe this is actually what Paul intended in Philippians 3, verse 2. In this this verse, Paul's warning the Philippians against some against some people who were as dangerous as junkyard dogs can be. That these people that Paul's warning them about were far more dangerous. Paul uses this very harsh and graphic language to speak of these people. And he's not just pulling insults out of the air. Okay, what's the worst thing I can call these people? And just pulling in these insults um, just willy-nilly from the top of his head. Uh, that's not what's happening. Rather, he has chosen his words very carefully so that his readers will know exactly who he's talking about. Um, of course, he's speaking here of the Jews of the the Jews who say that no one can have a relationship with God unless they have been circumcised. So Paul here in verse 2 says, look out for the dogs. Now why would he call them dogs? Well, it's because 
and the Jews actually called the Gentiles dogs. In fact, you would think that was a Gentile's last name if you were talking to a Jew. Watch out for those Gentile dogs, they would so often say. Uh, and Paul here is not referring to the nice, cute, cuddly uh, house pets that we have. Rather, the dogs that uh, are being referred to, that, that the Jews referred to Gentiles as being, and, and Paul here is referring the, to the Jews as being, were actually um, the stray, mangy dogs that hung around the trash piles, that ate the garbage and and uh, and refuge and, and, and things like that. Um, and so Paul is saying, watch out for them. And then he doesn't stop there. He also calls them evildoers. So again, why would he call them evildoers? Well, it's because the Gentiles, I'm sorry, the Jews called the Gentiles uh, evildoers. Uh, the, the Jews would so piously say, uh, we have the law of God God has given us the law of Moses, and so we are the ethical light of the world. And all those Gentiles, they are lawbreakers. They are rebellious. They are evildoers. And so Paul here is turning the tables, and he is calling the Jews the very thing that the Jews called the Gentiles. And then finally in verse 2, he calls the Jews the mutilators of the flesh. You see what I did there? I used finally, well before I'm finished or even beginning to finish the sermon. Uh, so Paul says that the Jews, because of their ins insistence on practicing circumcision, are, riddly, are really mutilators of the flesh. Literally. They are um, castrators. And so Paul is saying that the Jews who insist that circumcision is necessary uh, for salvation or to have a relationship with God, that really the tables are turned. That these Jews who have so much confidence in their religious, in their religious uh, ritual that they really don't know God. In fact, every Jew throughout history who instead of placing their trust in God has placed their trust in religious, in religious uh, uh, ritual have never known God. And he's saying, in fact, it is the Gentiles who trust in Christ even if they are not circumcised, who are the true circumcision. Well, how does that relate to us? That seems like an ancient debate that took place 2,000 years ago. Well, actually, this relates to us in every way. Circumcision was just a sign of a deeper spiritual reality. Now, without going to explain in graphic detail what circumcision was and what it um, and what it meant, let me simply say that God required the Israelites to practice circumcision as a visual reminder that their hearts were wicked and needed to be changed. And God made that clear in the Old Testament. Paul's not teaching something new. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, Moses said, Yet the Lord set His heart in love upon your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Also Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. So this physical sign of circumcision was just a physical sign that pointed to a deeper spiritual reality. The Israelites needed to be changed on the inside and that's something only God could do. They needed to be delivered from their own sinful hearts. They needed God desperately. They needed to be born again, to use Jesus' words to Nicodemus. But instead of fleeing to God, consistently the Israelites resisted Him. And they practiced the religious symbols, but they rejected the substance. And we could look at hundreds of passages in the Old Testament where God talks about being wearied by their religious ritual. Even though their religious ritual uh, was so careful to follow all all the little prescribed things that God told them to do. God said, I'm wearied by it because you resist Me. Because you rebel against Me. You do all these fine things and they look good uh, when you're sitting in church. And of course their church was in the synagogue or, or in the tent of meeting or wherever on a Saturday. And God said, it, it all looks good outwardly, but inwardly your hearts are spiritually dead. They are rock hard. And you need a new heart. And circumcision was a physical sign of the spiritual inward reality that they that they needed. And so they would practice these religious symbols but reject the substance. Why would they do that? Well, the reason is they wanted God on their own terms. They wanted God to bless them, but they did not want God to rule them. He could... God could rule their time because they could be on on the Sabbath day, the Saturday, they could rest from their work. He could rule their government, you know, it could be a theocracy. Uh, he could even rule their money where they give a tenth. But they said, God, you may not rule our inmost thoughts. That they ultimately reserve for themselves. In fact, you look at the Old Testament. The entire history of Israel is a history of people rebelling against their God. In fact, we could illustrate it like this. It would be like you coming to church today, giving your money in the offering plate, living a generally moral and upright life, Participating in communion, we have, uh, we're going to celebrate communion today. But then reserving for yourself the ultimate right to decide how you're going to live your life. 
God, I want Your blessings. God, I'm going to do all these outward things. I'm going to participate in all these, these outward symbols. But when it comes down to it, my life belongs to me. Outwardly, you look like you love God, but inwardly, in your heart, it's all about you because your heart needs to be circumcised. What would you think of a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but yet is here this morning and eagerly participates in the communion service? Well, you'd say that their, their participation was absolutely pointless because they're participating in the symbol without the inward spiritual reality. The symbol means nothing without the reality. And the same goes for anyone who does the religious things outwardly and believes even the right things generally, but inwardly resists God's rule in their life. On the Day of Judgment, all the religious activity, all the religious lip service will be absolutely pointless if the spiritual inward reality had never taken, uh, had never taken place in your life. The Apostle Paul um, is very specific about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 27 through 29. You don't need to turn there, but uh, listen to what he says. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised, talking about the Gentiles, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For one who is a Jew, uh, I'm sorry, for no one is a Jew who is one who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the law, or not by the letter. And His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul's saying, basically, the person who is physically uncircumcised, yet who has fled to Jesus Christ, who has been changed inwardly, who loves God, who loves to live under His rule, who trusts in Him, will condemn all those who were outwardly religious and were never inwardly changed by God. It's really a striking thing. There are murderers, bank robbers, molesters who were in prison, who may die in prison, but yet, as a pastor or a layperson goes in and preaches the gospel, or they have a Bible there in the prison and they begin reading it, and they become a believer in Jesus Christ. And they are changed inwardly. They are born again, born by the Spirit. They will stand up and condemn many in churches who cross all the T's, dotted all the I's religiously, who outwardly looked um, like a Christian in every way. Those wicked criminals who came to Christ will stand up 
and condemn people who lived outwardly moral lives who never uh, went to jail one day of their life. There are a lot of people who want just enough of a relationship with God to ease their consciences. They practice the symbols without the reality ever really being present. It's remarkable how many people want Christian weddings, but yet never intend to have Christ at the center of their marriage. Even more people want to have a Christian memorial service and a Christian burial while they live their lives not for Christ, but for themselves. This describes the entire history of the Jewish nation. And actually, it describes every religion outside of Christianity. (laughs) And it even describes many within Christianity. There are only two religions in the world. When you get right down to it, there is the religion of divine accomplishment, which is by which is salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, or there is the religion of human achievement, where people are able to do good things, do enough good things to appease God's anger. The religion of human achievement is wicked in God's eyes. That's why He warns them. And He calls these people who are, who are seeking to, to tell these, these uh, Philippians to, that you need to be circumcised as well as have Jesus. And He calls them dogs, evildoers, castrators. This religion of human achievement is wicked in God's eyes. What it does is it brings God, it brings God down from His character of infinite holiness or perfect holiness, infinite justice. And then it raises man up. So God comes down. He's holy, but He's not perfectly holy. He's uh, just, but not infinitely just. He leaves some wiggle room. So He comes down, and then man by His religious performance, man by His good works, He rises up, and hopefully the two meet. And for every other religion other than Christianity, that is salvation. Maybe it's that man comes up a little bit and God comes down more. Maybe it's that man rises up and God comes down a little bit, but they meet somewhere in the middle. The the Gospel, however, Christianity, in other words, says that man is running away from God. And God is perfectly holy. He is infinitely just but He is also unconditionally loving. And while man is running in the opposite direction from God, God, because of His great love, sent His Son Jesus Christ into the world to be a human being in order to die for human beings, in order that He might pay the price that man who is running away from God ultimately owes to God. And Jesus paid the full, entire, complete price in man's behalf. Meanwhile, what is man doing? 
man is still running away from God. And so what God does is He reaches out and grabs him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And, and turns him back to God. Brings him back to God. Convinces him of his need for God. Convinces him that he indeed was running away from God. That he was a rebel. And that he needs Jesus. And that Jesus has come. And He gives that, that rebel, that sinner, faith in to believe. And God brings him to the Lord Jesus into His finished work. And so, all we can do is trust in Christ with the faith that God gives us. That is the religion of Christianity. It is God's accomplishment from first to last. This is what we call, when the, when the Holy Spirit grabs us, regeneration or being born again. God justifies us by giving Jesus. God regenerates us by drawing us to Himself. God sanctifies us, adopts us. He even glorifies us. Your salvation from first to last is God's accomplishment. Jesus doesn't make salvation possible. Jesus saves. But the strategy of the human heart is that it doesn't like grace. You always feel like you've got to contribute something. Jesus plus my baptism. Jesus plus my church membership. Jesus plus the fact that I pray. Jesus plus the good things I've done. To add anything to Jesus' perfect work is to call into question His perfection. To add anything to Jesus is really to subtract from Jesus. Because what you were saying is Jesus wasn't enough and I had to add something else. It's very easy to become confused. And so I want to spend about uh, two or three minutes trying to um, disentangle some of the confusion. Because you may be sitting here this morning saying, what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in Jesus plus something else? Am I trusting in Jesus plus myself? Have I really trusted in Jesus? Well, there are five um, things that we typically do to try and verify our salvation. And these five things um, really do not verify your salvation. I got these five things from John MacArthur just to give him uh, due credit. Uh, the first thing we do is we base our conversion on a past conversion experience. For instance, I walked an aisle when I was in 10th grade. They told me never to doubt my salvation because I'd walked the aisle, prayed the prayer. But for the next two or three years, God was trying to tell me I wasn't a Christian. You know, a lot of people will, will take their little prayer card when they, they read the tract that talks about Jesus and then they pray the prayer and then they sign it and they date it. And it's like they put it in their pocket and they're going to pull it out on the day of judgment. Look, God, I prayed the prayer. I confessed uh, that I needed Jesus and, 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 uh, and, and trusted in Him on this day. Well, I didn't exactly trust Him after that. But I've got proof. I signed the card. That is not an adequate 
way to verify your salvation, basing it on something in the past. Second way that we try and verify our, verify our salvation wrongly is by living by a moral code. You know, I'm an honest person. I'm a kind person. I'm a generous person. I give to charity. Therefore, I must be saved. Or um, having a right knowledge of the truth, having the head knowledge. Um, you know, I believe the right things. I confess the right things. I'm sure you've heard the little saying that uh, what's, um, what's the distance uh, to heaven? How far is it to get to heaven? It's about 18 inches between your head and your heart. You can believe all the right things, but unless your heart has been changed, then having the right head knowledge, having the right confession, is not an adequate um, verifier of your salvation. Another thing that we trust in wrongly is religious activity. You know, I gave my tithe regularly. I went to church. I was baptized. On and on and on. I I prayed the prayers. I I did all these things um, for years and years, decades and decades. And that is uh, inadequate to verify your salvation. Uh, Fifthly, service in Christ's name. Doing something for Christ is not necessarily a verifier of your salvation. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, And then many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful works in Your name? And Jesus says, Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity, or you evildoers. I never knew you. And to really confuse matters, what we do is we, we combine several of these different things because it makes, makes it look better. It makes us uh, feel more secure. You know, we've got our past conversion experience. We're better than someone else. We, um, we have the right knowledge. Uh, we've been religiously active. Um, we've done some things in Christ's name and we combine a little bit of it and we make that our assurance of salvation. What does it mean to be a true Christian? Very, very briefly, look at verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision. And how does he describe it? Who worship by the Spirit of God. First of all. Secondly, glory in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, put no confidence in the flesh. I've already said quite a bit about not putting any confidence in the flesh. So I briefly mention that and just say again, your upbringing, your gifts, your past experience, all those things are putting confidence in what you do. In other words, you're putting confidence in the flesh. You trust in them and they will pull you down rather than lifting you up to God. You trust in them. And what ends up happening is you dilute the Gospel. You distort it. And you end up losing it altogether. And so, you cannot put... If you are a believer, you put no confidence in the flesh. Secondly, going back to the beginning of verse 3, you worship by the Spirit of God. 
You're here this morning to worship. The question is, are you worshiping by the Spirit of God? Are, is it your joy to be here this morning? Because Christ has changed you? Or are you here because your parents brought you? Or because this is what you've got to do? You know, I know my preaching can be a little dry, sometimes long-winded. I know our worship can drag on a little bit. But if the Spirit of God is in you, regardless of the quality of the worship or the preaching, you get the opportunity to worship Jesus Christ. Be with His people. That is what it means to worship by the Spirit of God. He changes your attitude. He, He directs your attitude. And then thirdly, lastly, Um, we glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ is everything. Is He your everything? Or when it gets right down to it, in your heart of hearts, regardless of your outward activity, are you your everything? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to ask that question. Who is the everything of your heart? Do I glory in myself or do I glory in Jesus Christ alone? Let's pray. Father, I ask that as um, we now transition to the communion uh, service, uh, help us to remember that it is more than just a, a service, that it is more than just the outward symbols that rather it is an outward symbol of the inward reality that You have changed our hearts, that You have risen from the dead, that You are seated at the right hand of God, and that You fellowship with Your people as we commune around these very ordinary elements. I pray that uh, you would, Your communion with us would be sweet, Um, as it always is. And so really what I'm praying for is that our communion with You would be sweet. Pour out Your Spirit in order that we would worship by the Spirit of God. Take no confidence in the flesh and glory only and always in Christ Jesus our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen.